You're listening to the Live Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Good morning, Life Church. I am so excited to be with you guys this morning. It's very special. Um, you know, Alex reached out to me and asked, uh, asked for my help to speak with you guys today, and I feel very honored to have the chance to do that. And uh, this is officially sermon number one for me. So that's exciting. Thanks for uh, being kind of a part of this cool milestone with me. I see you in the comment section. Appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. And uh, continuing off of last week's sermon, we're in uh, week two of our Esther series here at Life Church. And when Alex asked me to preach about Esther with you, I immediately thought of my first exposure to the story when I was a kid. You know, so, so <clears throat> I got this flashback, sitting in my family's van, my brothers to the right of me, parents up in the front seat, we're towing the uh, family pop-up camper behind us, and we're probably on our way to the Wisconsin Dells, maybe Colorado. We would take trips every once in a while to go camping as a family. And uh, my parents were nice enough to bring this mini 12 by 12 you know, TV that only had the capability of playing VCR tapes, you know, old school. And um, I remember on one of these road trips, my brother and I pop in our VCR, and uh, it's the VeggieTales version of the story of Esther. Now, show of hands, comment in the comment section. How many of you grew up with VeggieTales as kids or had kids that uh, grew up with VeggieTales? I, I see you. See you commenting there. Good stuff, right? You know, nothing scarring or weird about talking vegetables. You know, nothing like seeing mom in the kitchen slicing a tomato and you're like, oh, Bob, you know, <laughs> freaking out. I don't know. Um, but for those of you, who haven't seen the VeggieTales version of the story of Esther, it is definitely a G-rated version of the story. But I still remember getting scared, you know? I'm sitting in the van with my brother, little eight-year-old Nate, I got my blanket tucked up around me on my shoulders, I'm curled up in the back seat, and then boom, Haman's in trouble in the story, and all of a sudden this creepy Grim Reaper looking dude with this huge feather comes in and he's like here to banish Haman to the island of eternal tickling. <laughs> and this is supposed to be kid-friendly, but I was terrified. Because <laughs> it's creepy. That's hard for an eight-year-old kid. You know, I, I thought it was a little intense. Well, imagine my surprise when I grew older and found out that the real story, way worse than this G-rated version I knew in my head as a kid. You know, instead of the king kicking out the queen um, because she didn't make him a sandwich, which is the VeggieTales version. She gets kicked out because the king is drunk and wants to show off her beauty to all of his court. And uh, instead of Haman getting tickled for eternity, he gets impaled on a stake on the top wall for the whole city to see. And uh, side note, <laughs> when I reflect on this, um, I'm not sure which punishment is worse, the real version or the VeggieTales version, because the steak is definitely more gruesome, but being tickled until I want to die for eternity <laughs> sounds pretty rough, so I don't, I don't know. Regardless, the story of Esther is a heavy one. There's a lot of violence, there's a lot of sex, there's a lot of drunkenness, assassination plots, threats of genocide, racism, you name it, Esther's got it. 
Alex called it the Game of Thrones of the Bible last week, and that's an accurate <laughs> summary. That's what we're reading about. This is much worse than a kid's story about an onion being jealous of a green pea. <laughs> when we enter into the real story of Esther, we enter a kingdom that is doing many sinful things, far from the will of God. But one surprise that really stuck out to me when I did a deep dive into studying this book, <clears throat> one question I hadn't expected myself to ask, is Esther bad? Is Esther bad? <clears throat> I wanted to come into today telling you Esther was great, that she's awesome. You know, she has this Superman-type courage, you know, sticks up for the needy, shows courage and conviction, someone we could all look to as a good example of how to live our life. But as I studied this chapter more and more, I became confused. Is Esther bad? I called Alex to get his feedback on my sermon a few weeks ago, and I, I struggled. I asked him, is Esther a compromised hero? <clears throat> I'm having a hard time finding evidence that she's a good example of what we should model our lives after. <clears throat> and Alex was kind enough to just sit in this with me, let me process this. And then together we were like, oh, duh. You know, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of what we're reading. I'm trying to preach the wrong sermon. <clears throat> you see, Esther is actually way more of a gray hero. Someone whose internal morals are conflicting themselves. Think of someone like the Mandalorian from Star Wars. He's rough around the edges to begin with, which makes him, you know, he makes some borderline evil or wrong decisions. But then he finds redemption by saving an innocent child, Baby Yoda, and becoming the really cool space dad we didn't even know we needed. Now, I originally wanted to preach today about Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda, that type of hero, but instead I'm preaching to you about knockoff Boba Fett. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like the Mandalorian, Esther made decisions that made me go, hmm, really? I didn't expect that. Or, hmm, I don't know, that's not a decision that a hero would make. And as I read this chapter, it seemed like her life was full of compromise. That she was living in certain ways that were out of God's will. And we'll dive into the examples of that in just a bit. But I found myself thinking, surely there must be someone else. Surely there must have been a woman more righteous than Esther that God could have chosen. Surely there must have been someone less compromised and more courageous. And I don't know about you guys, but this isn't the only time I've asked that question before in my life. Surely there must be someone else. Surely there must have been someone else more qualified that we could have picked. Surely we could have found someone nicer than this guy because he's kind of a jerk. Maybe you thought that about the elections over the last dozen years. Surely... <laughs> We could have gotten better candidates than that. Is this the best we get? Maybe you've thought that about someone who has given authority over you at work, a boss. You know, surely there must have been someone better. Surely there must have been someone more qualified or nicer to work with. Maybe you feel like that with your family. Our families are chosen for us. And some of you might be saying, surely God could have given me more loving parents. Out of all the families in the world, Surely God could have given me a different one. So for the rest of our time today, here's what I got. Here's our roadmap. I'm going to take you through this idea of Babylon. I'm going to talk about why that's important, why you should even care. 
and the role it plays in this story. And then I'll take you through four different problems with Esther's and Mordecai's decisions that we read about here in chapter 2. These will help give us some context around this question, is Esther bad? And then we'll talk about why all this matters and how we can apply it to our story. So let's start with this idea of Babylon, okay? I want to give our scripture some context before I dive into it. And throughout the sermon, you're going to hear me refer to Babylon a lot. And I want to clarify that this doesn't mean the Babylonian Empire. We've talked about the fact that um, we're past the Babylonian exile. You know, the Jewish people are no longer forced to live outside of Jerusalem. It's over. And uh, Persia is now in charge. The Jews have been allowed to return home to their promised land for a long time. And by the time we get to the story of Esther, a lot of them already have. A lot of them have already returned home. The temple's being rebuilt. <clears throat> and uh, many Jews like Mordecai and Esther are still outside of Jerusalem. And uh, for many Jews, staying in the land of Babylon instead of Israel was a choice, not a requirement. So when I reference Babylon, I want you to visualize it as a symbol of being separate from God. And for those of you who have zoned out, now's the time to bring it back, right? I want you to pay attention to this. Babylon is a symbol for exile and disobedience. And Jerusalem is equal to faithfulness and returning home. There's this contrast between the two, a stark contrast that is necessary for understanding the story. And so if this is a story about the Jews and their role as God's people, why is it happening in Babylon? Shouldn't they have returned home by now? So let's jump into the scripture for today. If you have your Bibles, your Bible apps, please open up to Esther chapter 2 with me. And I'll start with verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be made queen, queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Now pause. Here's problem number one. Remember, like I said, the exile's done. The Jews have been allowed to return home. Yet here, we see that Mordecai is still in Babylon. And remember that imagery I explained with Babylon. It's a land far from what God has promised his people. So why? Why stay? Look at Mordecai's ancestry that's mentioned. He was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. That meant that not only was he allowed to return back home to Jerusalem, but he had a clan. He had a tribe that would have welcomed him home. Back then, it was a big deal to be officially associated with a tribe. Since Mordecai knew his ancestry and could prove his association with the tribe of Benjamin, he would have known that if he returned to Israel, he would have had a place to call home and he would have been taken care of. Yet he stayed. Why? Why stay? The Bible doesn't say 
but Mordecai must have somewhat had an attitude of, eh, I don't know, I'm kind of good here. Which is crazy. <laughs> it's crazy because Babylon is full of anti-Semitic racism against the Jewish people. Just in this story alone, many people in this land are on board with the idea of genocide against the Jews. Yet Mordecai chose to stay. Why would he stay in a land where the people are openly hostile against him? Wouldn't you rather return to a land where your laws and traditions are openly talked about and accepted, where you'd have a home with your own people? Makes me wonder what pressures or reasons Mordecai would have had to, you know, would have had that would have caused him to stay in a land that didn't accept him or his religion or his culture. He stayed in the land that had a non-Jewish heathen king who was considered to be a god to his own people and expected people to worship him. Yet Mordecai and Esther stayed in Babylon. Why? That's problem number one. One. Problem number two, let's read verse seven together. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Hadassah. Hadassah was Esther's given Hebrew name. Esther is her secular name. Now, it was common during these times where other foreign powers were present for Jewish people to have both a Hebrew name and a secular name. And we all know Esther's name to be Esther, which is her secular name. That's not her Hebrew name. How many of you before today could have told me that Esther's real name was Hadassah? Comment. I see you there in the comments. Someone's got it. And I just want to say you're a Bible nerd but I love you for it. <laughs> Bonus Bible points for you. A plus extra credit. Okay. So this begs the question, what kind of pressure would have to be evident in your life to cause you to abandon your given name? That must be an intense pressure. It's definitely evident that there is some sort of danger associated with people knowing your Jewish heritage. And either way, Esther is hiding her identity and who she is just with her name. Think about what a name is, right? It has meaning, describes who you are, you know, and what or who you're associated with. In this case, Esther chose not to be associated with her Hebrew heritage, and that implies a lot of problems. And that leads us to problem number three. Let's continue reading verse eight. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor, and immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He signed to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Mordecai told Esther to blend in, to not stand out. Don't let the people know you're Jewish. Let's think about 
what that actually means. What would that mean back then to not let people know that you're Jewish? Anyone familiar with the book of Leviticus? That's the Jewish identity. That's how you're supposed to live your life. Some examples. Let's give some examples of what that means. Pagan worship, right? No pagan worship. Worshiping any God that's not the one true God is a big no-no, which means Esther would not have been allowed to worship Xerxes, which is awkward. <laughs> Just think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story, where they refused to worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. This is the same deal here with Xerxes. And we know that Persia had multiple gods that were regularly worshipped. We don't know exactly how Esther approached this process with pagan worship, but what we do know is that she wasn't sticking out to the point where they felt they needed to throw her in a burning furnace. <laughs> there was no lion's den in the story of Esther. All right, so that's one. Two, kosher diet, right? Diet's a big thing in Levitical law. Eating kosher, that meant certain meats and dairies were off the table to the Jewish people. So, how does Esther abide by those laws without betraying her identity? She can't go to Haggai and ask for a kosher diet without revealing she's Jewish. And again, I ask you to compare this to the book of Daniel. We know that in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel refused to eat food that was given to him from the king's table. He maintained a diet of vegetables to not defile himself. That's the word they use. And I think it's likely that in this case that Esther did not hold to a kosher diet or else she wouldn't have been able to hide her identity. And the last point with Levitical law, think of sexual purity, right? Biblical marriage. Marriage done right in the right way was really important. And we'll go into more of that in problem number four in just a bit. But Levitical law made it really clear that Jews were not supposed to sexually compromise. Sex and marriage is a sacred thing. So I give you each of these examples um, just because I want you to be able to have a better understanding of what Esther's life could have looked like. The Bible doesn't elaborate on how she actually approached worshiping the Persian gods. It doesn't elaborate on what she ate every day. <clears throat> we don't know the specific ways that she hid her Jewishness, but making these inferences just helps us put ourselves in her shoes. It helps make these people real people, not just a story. And it helps us understand what not trying to look Jewish practically could have meant. However, the Bible does make it clear that she did hide her identity. She did hide her Hebrew heritage, and she was actively trying to do so. There was deception and compromise involved in both her identity and with her relationships with those around her. She chose compromise, not holiness. All right, so that leads us to problem number four. Let's read the rest of the passage together. Starting with verse 12, before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there. And in the morning, she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. 
and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her, and she was taken to the King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Esther trains for a year just to get good enough at a one-night stand with an egotistical heathen king. <laughs> Listen, I know that sounds crass, and I'm not trying to be. This is just what's in the Bible. Read your Bible, right? Read your Bible. <laughs> and both this one-night stand and marrying a heathen are very clearly against the laws of God. There aren't supposed to be any sexual experiences outside the context of marriage, and she's competing with other women to live into further compromise. And it's clear to point out Esther is not just a passive participant. She is actively trying to win this pageant. And the point is that she's running towards compromise, not away from it. For context, Esther's already made it to the palace, right? We read about the queen and we read about the concubines. She's set for life. Even if she doesn't win, her quality of life has already drastically increased beyond just being a peasant for the rest of her life. She doesn't have to be a queen and she's made it, you know? She could have realized this contest was messed up and was like, okay, hands off. I'm taking a passive back seat. This is weird. This is not what God wants for me. But instead she went full send <laughs> and tried to win it. She tried to win it. She asked Haggai the eunuch for insider info on how to please the king. And uh, this is one of those cases where I'm thankful the Bible left out the specifics <laughs> of what that meant. So what's the deal? What's the deal with all of this? We see other people in Scripture stand up for their faith courageously, and they're rewarded for it. I've mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story. They never compromise from the beginning, and they're protected and they're rewarded for their faith. God delivers them. So the story leaves me wondering, what's going on? Where is Esther's self-respect and integrity? I wanted to preach about <clears throat> Esther being a saint, but I can't. Where is her passionate heart that runs after God's commands unconditionally? It brings me back to what I said at the beginning, surely. There must be someone else. Why her? Why Esther? Where's her Daniel-like courage? But you know what? This isn't that story. This isn't Daniel's story. This is Esther's story. And God is trying to teach us something different through her example. Like Esther, most of us have compromised because of the pressure of our culture. Many of us, like Esther, have hidden our faith because it's easier to blend in than it is to stand out. Many of us, like Esther, have chosen to stay in Babylon. We stay in our own Babylon, enjoying a lifestyle that is not God's plan for us, instead of returning to what God wants for our lives. 
Many of us have much more practice in compromise than we do in holiness. From the TV shows we watch, to the ways we kill boredom, to the ways we treat our family members, to the ways we talk poorly about people behind their back, gossip, slander, even hidden addictions in our lives that cause us to live double lives. And some of us are just angry. We don't know how to process our emotions in a healthy way, and other people around us pay the price for that. Just like Esther, many of us practice compromise daily. So I want us to do this. Instead of asking, why Esther? Let's ask, why us? Why us? Like Esther, God has chosen us for such a time as this. And he's calling all of us out of compromise. He's calling us into obedience out of Babylon and back into the promised land. Because in Jesus, the exile is over. Just like for the Jewish people, Babylonian exile is done, our exile is done. Jesus has happened. The cross has happened. Jesus has paid our debts. He's raised from the dead. We are free. He is a chain breaker, and the exile has been broken. Our lives have been paid for, and we have a new purpose and a new identity in Jesus. And like Esther, we are being called into a purpose and a destiny that is way greater than our compromises, than our nation, than our time in history. God is greater than everything. And God wants to use you. And he wanted to use Esther. He prepared Esther to be in the right time at the right place. And he was playing chess, you know. He was getting his queen, queen in the right position for a checkmate. You'll hear more about Esther's role to play later in, you know, these upcoming weeks in this sermon series. But spoiler alert, the point, uh, <laughs> the point of it is that when push came to shove, Esther chooses obedience. You know, she starts in compromise, but she chooses obedience when God calls her to it. And we need to do the same thing. God is calling us out of compromise and into obedience. And he has chosen all of you for such a time as this. We are not too far gone to be useful. God is a redeemer and he loves you. He loves you. I love to talk about this loyal love that Jesus has for you. His grace is limitless. Even when you feel like you don't deserve it, he's there. He's welcoming you home. And he is actively working in all of our uh, lives right now out of that loyal love for us. And let me tell you, if I were my own judge, I would have tossed me out with the bathwater years ago. But luckily... (laughs) We can't even begin to comprehend the grace that God has for us. We are not called to live in shame for our previous decisions to compromise. That's in the past. And God renews all things that are dead. God wants to renew the Babylon in all of our lives. He wants to renew those dead areas in our lives and make dead things whole. Make old things new. This is who our God is. And God is choosing to use us in his plan regardless of our brokenness. He chooses to use Esther and Mordecai 
regardless of the brokenness. And he wants to use us in his plans to renew and bring love to this world. So at this point, you may be thinking, yeah, Nate, that's cool. <laughs> I can believe that. I can get behind that. But what do I do about it, right? Application time, there's a couple tangible steps that all of us can take to try to live this out. If you're identifying with anything, you know, any of those examples of compromise that I was talking about earlier, I encourage you to reach out. Don't fight this fight alone. There's a reason God blesses us with community and the church. We're called to be together. We're called to live in intimacy together. It's a gift. I think about the Holy Trinity. That's something cool too, right? Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God living in community together. I think we're supposed to do the same thing, right? Pursue prayer. I encourage us to pursue accountability. Confess your struggles to a close friend. If you're feeling convicted, confess your struggles to a close friend, family member, maybe one of the pastors here on staff. Join a small group or get more plugged in. Serve. Serve together as a community. Grow those bonds by serving together. Let's walk through life together and pursue daily spiritual discipline as a community. That's what the church is. Brotherhood, sisterhood, iron sharpens iron. Fight for your integrity and reject compromise every day. And with those spiritual disciplines, you know, it makes me think of what a mentor in my life would tell me all the time. He told me to think about the four D's, right? Daily discipline determines destiny. Daily discipline determines destiny. Your actions each day matter. They add up. Let's choose discipline each day. And you know, these are just some options. What I listed, there's a lot more than that. Those are just a few to get you thinking. But the key and what I want you to take away from that is don't do this alone. You're not supposed to fight this fight alone. Compromise is hard. The pressure of Babylon is hard and difficult. But you're not called to be alone in this. True joy is found in freedom and intimacy with the Lord, with Jesus. So as we close, I ask you now, where is God calling you out of compromise today? Where is God calling you out of compromise today? Where is God calling you to address the Babylon in your inner life? Some of you may have come here today and you've never chosen obedience with God before. Living into this truth that God loves you and wants freedom and redemption in your life is a new concept. And you haven't lived that out before. You may wonder, who is this Jesus? And how can this gift be so good and free and available to me? So I just ask all of us, watching digitally right now, let's just close our eyes and bow our heads together right now, all right? Just join me in this prayer. And uh, if you're thinking about what I'm saying, and, um, and that's you, this is lining up with you, and, uh, and you want to live a new life of obedience with Jesus, I just ask you to meditate on these words with me. Repeat these words in your mind. Say them with me. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've compromised in my life. I've know, I know I've previously lived my life for me and not for you. I ask for your forgiveness of the places I've compromised in my life. And I ask you to redeem me. I ask you to give me a new life. 
I put my faith in you today, and I recognize that I don't need to live the rest of my life trapped in Babylon. The exile is done and I have freedom if I want it. I can live with I can live in freedom with you right now as my savior. Lord, I give you my life and I trust in my new identity that's been paid for with the death and resurrection of you, Jesus Christ. My life is yours and I choose to live in your love for me. In your name, 